If uh, you would join me in opening your copy of the Scriptures and finding your way to 1 Samuel chapter 12 this morning, 1 Samuel 12 in the Pew Bibles, that's page 233. You know, some things happen in a church service that are just unplanned and spontaneous, and depending on how alert you are that day, they may strike you as a little bit humorous. So I don't know if it was because a smoke alarm went off in our house at 3.30 this morning and kept me up since then, but looking at the children's church, children are dismissed, the big on the screens, followed right by, I need thee every hour. I smile through the first verse of that, you know. And if I'm not careful to hurry, the children's workers will be praying, I need thee every hour. Get done. I'm going to do something a little different uh, this morning because I just want to be very, very clear. This text, 1 Samuel chapter 12, has a clear point, and it is this. Follow King Jesus with all your heart. It's not rocket science. For Christians... It is Christianity 101, and as we have sung already many times this morning, God's faithfulness stands in a stark contrast to us. So I want to call South Canyon Baptist Church this morning to follow King Jesus with all your heart. The structure of 1 Samuel chapter 12 helps make this point. As you look at the first 13 verses, we see God's righteousness... And then in verses 14 through 25, we see this righteous king calling sinners to repentance, to submit to his rule, and to follow him with all their heart. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on the second point in verses 14 through 25. And if I could just make a brief commercial here for our series through 1 Samuel. In the Missions Cafe, we have books for sale. And on the shelf, you will find copies of First and Second Samuel, a, a little bound copy that's a journal Bible. And so you can get those there. And the whole text of these two books are there. And as we're working through the series, you can just make your notes as you study at home. Just a little commercial there for the Missions Cafe. All right. So let's look at this first part of the passage, verses 1 through 13, and we see clear facts that Samuel gives. He is a leader who has integrity, and he represents a God who is righteous. You look at verses 1 through 13, and Samuel said to all Israel, and we need to back up a little bit because chapter 12 isn't the beginning of a new um, storyline in the narrative. This is a continuation of what ends at the end of chapter 11. So if you look at 11 in verses 14 and 15, Samuel, after the big battle of Saul leading the nation against the Ammonites and destroying them, rescuing the city of Jabesh-Gilead, God is glorified as his king does what his king ought to do. And then Samuel, in verse 14, said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, 
I have obeyed your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said to him, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you. His anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. You see, what's happening here is the shift is turning away from Samuel as God is my witness, have I done anything wrong? And the people are saying, no, Samuel, you have not taken anything. You have not extorted anything. You have not perverted justice. You have not acted wickedly. Ironically, his sons had. We were told that earlier, right? They were prone to twist the truth and rule in the favor of somebody when they were slipped a bribe. So Samuel is asking the nation to confirm his integrity before the Lord, and then once they've done that, Samuel pivots, and now he says, before the Lord, I want to witness to you of his righteousness and your unrighteousness. Let's continue reading. Verse 8. I'm sorry. Verse 7, now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Let's just... Pause there for a moment and reflect on what Samuel is doing here. 
He's called the nation together for a ceremony in Gilgal. And this national gathering, politically, we know that, Paul, that Saul was made king at Mizpah, another part of the country. So the ceremony at Gilgal is serving a different purpose. If you notice back in chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, when Israel made Saul king and when they offered peace offerings, both actions were done, we're told, before the Lord. That phrase will also appear in verse 3, in verse 5, and 6, and 7. The point being, Israel is now gathered together in a group in the presence of King Yahweh, and the covenant that's being renewed isn't that the Israelites will submit to Saul as king, but that Israel will submit to Yahweh as king. We see in verses 1 through 5, Samuel was an honest judge who walked in integrity. He says, guys, I've walked before you. I'm old and gray. Now your king is walking before you. This signaled to the, the, the people of Israel that a transition was taking place. And Saul publicly transfers the role of judge from himself to Saul by calling Israel to testify against him as a judge before the Lord. Guys, before we transfer power here, I want you to know, in this transfer of power, there needs to be accountability. So, is there something that I need to make right? He asked Israel to testify against him before the Lord. If he didn't demonstrate integrity, he's submitting himself to the Old Testament law. We find a similar statement that Paul makes in his farewell to the elders at the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, where he says, guys, I did these things. I labored in the midst of you. You testify against me if I didn't give my life for the sake of this church. Well, in verse 4, the people clear Samuel of any wrongdoing before the Lord. And Samuel confirms, the Lord is witness that you have cleared me of anything. In verse 5. Now, Samuel's not doing this to grandstand. He's not like, hey, I'm on my way out. I'm going to take my victory lap. And I want to hear the shout, Samuel, Samuel. He's doing this to show this consistent manner of transition of leadership within Israel. We're going to see that this passage has huge echoes from Deuteronomy and Moses and the book of Joshua. Samuel's not doing anything new here. And I think we could pause here for a moment and just say, South Canyon, pray that God will protect your elders and your deacons so that they may do their ministry with integrity. I think that would be a very fair application from this. And on, as a result of us going through a budget process, I can stand here on behalf of the staff and the pastors and thank South Canyon for their good care of us so that we aren't trying to do a little hustle to make an extra buck so that we are also not so uh, flush with cash that we're living independent of God. I mean, we are not being tempted here. So thank you as a church for your care for us. But even more, may each member of South Canyon and may each Christian who is here today do your work with such integrity. Christians who walk humbly before the Lord are a blessing to their employers and their co-workers. They understand that whatever they do, they work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Because we know that we are serving God 
And it's from the Lord that we will receive the inheritance as our reward, as Paul says in Colossians 3. So, brothers, sisters in Christ, let's conduct ourselves in such a way that our peers will be able to testify to our integrity. In the presence of God, Israel affirms Samuel was honest. And now in the presence of God, Samuel testifies to God's righteousness and Israel's disobedience. God's righteousness is seen as we look at verses 8 through 13, that he met the need of his people. He delivered them from their oppressors over and over again. From the time of Exodus, verse 8, all through the period of Judges, verses 9 through 11, to the very day in which Samuel was speaking this, when they demanded a king in verses 12 and 13, God had proved his righteousness. And when the righteousness of God is demonstrated, the outcome for God's people is always the same. You know, when you see and encounter a holy God, what happens is universal. It happened to the prophet Isaiah. It happened to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so many others. It happened over and over to the nation of Israel. When you encounter the righteous and holy God, you shrink back. Because his righteousness exposes our sinfulness. Time and time again, Israel turned from following God in order to worship these false religions and these gods that that appealed to their lust and their wickedness. And this wasn't coming to church to hear someone preach. This was going into temples and committing sexual acts as a form of worship. It had deep hooks in the hearts of these people. And it was only after God disciplined Israel by turning her over to her enemies that she cried out to him for help. That she begged him, oh, keep the covenant promises that you made to us to restore us, to forgive us, to turn us and rescue us. This first passage shows us a righteous God. It shows us a righteous God who is calling people to come to him and know him. And the reminder of God's faithfulness in your own history, Christian, also will evoke an understanding of your sinfulness. It will remind you that you needed to repent. And here's where we find good news. Look at verses 14 through 25. Samuel's laid out the facts. I've I've kept integrity all my days. And you guys know that God has demonstrated his integrity to you for generations. Now, I want you to see something that when you know who God is, you have a right view of who you are as a sinner, and these are the facts. Now, here's the response. And so, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12, and verses 24 and 25 of chapter 12, function as bookends, as it were, to this section. They both reinforce covenant language. If you will... Follow the Lord and cleave to him wholly. Then he will protect you and provide. But if you turn from him, then he will judge you, both you and your king. Samuel uses this language in both of these. And so it kind of neatly closes out this section. So let's look at it. The response, God calls sinners to submit to his rule and follow them. Follow him with all their heart. God calls sinners to submit to his rule and follow him with all their heart. We see this in verses 14 through 25. 
this religious ceremony, Samuel called all Israel to renew their covenant with God. He uses covenant language, as I just said. Look at verse uh, 14. Samuel says, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? Is it not the driest part of our year? Is it not a time for reaping rather than planting? Well then, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord. And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, These are sweet, sweet words. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king." So many echoes of Deuteronomy and Joshua. The transition of leadership from Samuel to Saul uses similar language of blessings and curses, just as Moses did when he transferred leadership of Israel over to Joshua. And then later, as Joshua nears the end of his life, he uses this covenant language as he prepared Israel for his death. All three men called Israel to hear God's word And remember their covenant responsibilities. To the Lord your God. This idea that Israel says, or Samuel tells Israel, the Lord is your God. But did you notice in verse 16, Jerry and I were talking about this this morning before church. When he brings about judgment and he shows them that they have sinned. What do the people say in verse 19? Excuse me. They say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God. See, Israel had this idea that because of their sin, God was no longer their God. They could not be reconciled to him. They couldn't be forgiven. And Samuel made it clear over and over through the text that this is their God. 
Samuel's got integrity. God hears him when he cries out and sends a storm of all storms. No wonder they trembled and feared the Lord and they feared Samuel, his prophet. And that glimpse of God's holiness to do what was unthinkable in that time of year proved their sinfulness. And so therefore they believe they have lost all chances of having God's favor. But this is not the sake, this is not the fortune of those who are in Christ, is it? We have been secured. What is the first step of entering into covenant with God? How is it that we can go from being rightly condemned as we stand in the light of God's holiness and all we see is spots? How then can we enter into covenant with this God? Well, the first step is seen here in verses 19. The language that that is used here is similar to Moses' words at the Red Sea right before he's going to part that for the waters to part and Israel to cross and Egypt, Egyptian army will follow. Samuel says, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Moses said, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Sadly, although these two men used similar language, the circumstances were completely different, weren't they? The Red Sea parted and Israel was given life. Here, what they see is a word of judgment, that they have sinned wickedly. And they understand that. They now feel the weight of their sin in a new and fresh way. And what do they say? Oh, please pray for us, Samuel. Please pray for your servants. Perhaps God will listen to your voice. Oh, we pray that we will not die for our sin. We've added to all the evil that we have done all through our history by asking for a king now. What do you do when you know you've been caught and you're guilty? And that shame and that regret and that remorse for your sin has just crippled you. What should you do in that moment? You can't deny it. Friend, God's Spirit may be convicting you this morning of sin. Just like Israel, we all have sinned. You may hear this voice thundering in your hearts. It's not me. It's not that Eric has the sound system turned up too loud. It's the Spirit of God working to show you your need for Him. You want to run from Him. What should you do? Well, let me just say, take a playbook out of Israel. What did they do in verse 19? They say, cry out to us, Samuel. They plead for mercy. So how do we know that God has heard those prayers? How do we know that God has indeed forgiven them? Well, you look at verses 20 through 23, and Samuel, what does he do? He comforts the people. Don't be afraid. Yes, you have done all this evil, but don't turn aside from following the Lord. Serve Him with all your heart. He assured them of pardon. And again, we see a shadow of Moses here. Moses in Deuteronomy 9, verses 19 through 29, recounts several instances where God was prepared to destroy Israel because of their sin, and Moses interceded for them in prayer, and God spared them. We need someone who will intercede for us. 
We need someone who's better than Samuel, who not only has integrity, but is sinless. We need someone who will intercede for us, who will go to God on our behalf. And that person is answered in Jesus Christ. We know that passage in 1 John 1, 7, where it states that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 12 states the fact that Jesus has mediated a new covenant through his blood. You see, he died to save sinners. God raised him and has seated him in the heavenly places where now Jesus is interceding for us By his life, death, and resurrection, he has brought about peace and pardon for God, from God, for all who trust in him. Turn with me. Let's let's take a little field trip, okay? Let's go to Romans chapter 10 and look at verses 5 through 11. What does it look like to cry out to God for mercy? When confronted by your sin and seeing that a holy God has declared you guilty, your own day of thunder and lightning and rain when it's supposed to be dry, hot, and a parched land. When God has so brought you onto the frying pan that you are starting to curl up like bacon and you realize without his grace you will perish, what do you do? Well, you cry out to God. Well, how do you know that God will indeed hear that prayer, that he will honor you with the promise of forgiveness and pardon. Well, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 5, Paul writes, and he quotes Moses here, and he says this, For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, similar to what we just read here in 1 Samuel. If you obey the Lord your God and love him with all your heart, it will go well for you and your king. But, Paul goes on to say, the righteousness based on faith does do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And I'll just clarify that for you, because Paul does Paul like no one else. He gets us a little turned sideways and we don't know what he's really meaning What Paul is saying here, don't say in your heart that I can do things physically. A righteousness based on faith understands there's nothing I can do to get God's favor. I can't pull Jesus down from heaven. I can't raise him from the dead. I can't go where he is. I can't do enough to get salvation. But what does the righteousness of faith say as Paul picks up? It says the word is near you. That word of faith that we proclaim, it's near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, King. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you hear that? You are one of the everyone. We all are ones of the everyone. In both Romans 10 and 1 Samuel 12, the assurance of pardon and salvation comes after a confession of faith. Did you see that? 
Go back to, go back to 1 Samuel 12, verse 19. They cried out, we are guilty. And Samuel said to them, don't be afraid. Why, why was he able to say that to them? Because he understood that they had truly repented of their sin. And when we repent of our sin, as Romans 10 tells us, we can believe in our heart, we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have the guarantee that we will be forgiven. But confession precedes the pardon. You're not pardoned from your sin just because you kind of think about something. You're pardoned by admitting your guilt and to crying out to God for his mercy, as Israel does here. This ark of 1 Samuel is often seen in our service order. We'll have a call to worship, kind of like, hey, Samuel, call all Israel to Gilgal. Hey, call all South Canyon here to 3333 West Chicago Street. And in that time, we have a prayer of confession. And we are reminded that we are sinners and that we need God's grace. And then that prayer of confession is usually followed by an assurance of pardon. We don't want people to linger with a false guilt when Jesus has paid it all. We rejoice that God has forgiven our sins. We, Christianity, believes that God forgives sins. It's written into the Apostles' Creed, perhaps the earliest summary of Christianity. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's not a religion where human works erase guilt or balance the scales so that merit is earned. Christianity is a religion based on God's promise to forgive all our sin because Jesus paid it all. So I want to speak to you this morning that no matter what your ledger says, no matter what you know you've done, it can be cleaned. It can be washed. You can be made new by confessing Jesus. After assuring them of pardon in verse 20, Samuel quickly called them to actions that stem from a changed heart. Now, please understand this. Pay attention to the sequence. There's a righteous God who exposes sinful people. And then those sinful people confess God's righteousness and their unworthiness. That confession of faith is then followed by an assurance of pardon, and that assurance of pardon, your sins have been forgiven, now prompts Samuel to say, but you now need to live a changed life. You can't just stop with, oh man, my sins are forgiven. Let's just go back to the way we lived before. Samuel's very clear. Your life ought to be changed by a truth you embrace in Christ. Notice, the following, the God, that following God is exclusive. What he says in verses 20 and 21, turn us, don't turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn aside after empty things, things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. There is an exclusivity to following Jesus. You can't have Jesus and your sin. You can't walk arm in arm with both of them. This again reminds us of a similar tone in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. 
You see God's holiness, and it reveals our guilt. True confession leads to God's pardon, and that pardon, that experience of God's grace, man, that motivates you. That, that's Our service to God is done out of joy, not out of duty. I used to think that like we just had to keep rules in order that God was happy with us, but God is growing us as believers to show us that out of a heart that's truly changed, we want to make him happy. We're not being forced to. To say no to sin is not uh, some kind of self-aggrandizement. It's not me trying to like beat down my own flesh. It's like, I know this is an empty thing. I want a better thing. God's given me the freedom to do what is right. The real question we ask, we need to ask, as we follow God with joy and wonder, and we see what unfolds in verse 22 and 23, notice the sweet peace that comes into our hearts when we are reminded that our salvation is based on God's faithfulness and not our own. Look at look, verse 22. After saying, now that you've been pardoned, live this life that results from being forgiven, he says in verse 22, the Lord will not forsake his people. I mean, Samuel has already showed that to them in story form, recounting their history. We could spend the rest of the year sitting in here, hearing story after story of how God has worked individually in each of our hearts, proving his faithfulness time and time again. He will meet you where you are, and he will take you where he wants to lead you. He will not forsake his people. Samuel says, The reason God does this is for his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Again, we're reminded that there is no treasure in us. Like God didn't hit the lottery. The 2.1 billion, that's not God saving you. I've I found, remember that proverb? I found a field and it had gold in it, so I bought the field in order to get the gold. God bought sinners. He bought the worst so that his name would be made much of, not ours. He did it so that he could make a people who are unique and peculiar, as Peter says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Man, if there's nothing else we should be doing as Christians, it's to just say, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. He's changed me. You can take all the trappings away. My life is changed because of what Jesus has done. This is our confession. We are the people of God because we have received the mercy of God. So Samuel, he shows, oh, how good and great our joy is that God is not like us. He is not tired of us. He is not so annoyed that he says, I'm done. I'm cutting the call. I've, I've sowed too much resources in you. It's just, it's a black hole. That's not God at all. For the good of his name, 
He will not forsake his people, verse 22. And notice Samuel demonstrates the heart of a shepherd in verse 23. He would continue to intercede and instruct them. It's kind of an echo, again, of another passage where Proverbs uh, 4.11 says, I've directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of the instruction. Don't let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Paul had a similar heart to continue to care for the church. Romans, for God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. For I preach the gospel, for I am under compulsion, for woe to me if I do not preach, 1 Corinthians. Since the day we heard of your conversion, we have not ceased to pray for you, he wrote to the Colossians. We keep praying earnestly night and day that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith, he said to the Thessalonians. So elders, let me just encourage you. Let us be faithful to pray over this church. Let us be faithful to instruct this church in the good and the right way. Members of South Canyon, let us commit to pray for one another and disciple one another. It's spelled out in the four promises we make to one another and before the Lord in our covenant. God's witnessing our promises that we make. We just went through the covenant class in our discovery class. It's, I will safeguard the unity of my church by acting in love toward others in the church. I will share the responsibility of my church by being intentionally involved in making disciples of Jesus. I will support the ministry of my church by using my gifts and finances to serve and support the ministry. I will seek the community of my church by regularly attending the weekly worship service and by pursuing close friendships with others. We are called together as a people to care for one another, to intercede for one another in prayer, to instruct one another, to sharpen one another. And then Samuel closes it all out with this, or or we see another reminder, even today as we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, which, what does this thing do for us? When we share the bread and we drink of the cup, what does this teach us? What does this remind us? That our God does not forsake his people. Our God keeps his promises. The promises that he made to us in Christ. The promise that he will see us safely to his side. And what, what's the response for us? Well, being reminded of God's faithfulness to us, it calls forth greater faith and obedience in us. And so as you come to the end of the text in verses 24 and 25, Samuel again strikes another mosaic tone when he reminds the people, consider what great things he has done for you. Maybe this would be a helpful exercise this afternoon as you share a meal. Count your blessings. Name them one by one, not material things. I'm talking about God changing things. God answering prayer things. God delivering on his promise to meet your needs, both spiritual and physical. We're encouraged to remember the great things that God has done for us. 
I said it struck a mosaic tone because in Deuteronomy 10, verse 21, Moses says to Israel, Remember, he is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Don't forget, Samuel was speaking this to a people who had witnessed God deliver them from the Ammonites, who had witnessed God bring a storm that was troubling and scary in a season where there weren't supposed to be storms. They had witnessed God bring them a king. They had witnessed God being worshipped. And they're being called to worship this righteous, gracious, pardoning God. This is our joy as well as Christians. Why does it matter that, that they were drugged to Gilgal to renew the covenant there? Why does it matter that in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12... In verses 24 and 25, that Samuel used covenant language. Why does it matter that the the people confessed their sin in verse 19? Or that Samuel gave them an assurance of pardon in verse 20? And then he he followed that up by a call to follow God and a promise that God would not forsake his people. How does all this matter to us? I think it's helpful for us to remember that the book of 1 Samuel was not written in real time. So, in other words, the the people who lived 1 Samuel were long dead and turned to dust by the time 1 Samuel was written. And you know what's interesting? If you look at through, there's little clues, like go to chapter 27, I think it's verse 6, and it says, "In in the days of the kings of Judah... This, this had a different name, this town. And, and so it appears that Samuel was likely written during the time where the monarchy had divided, past Samuel or Solomon's time, where the kings and the people of both Israel and Judah sank into ever deeper sin. And so Samuel was written, and if they were to open their Bible and have devotions on some day, they would read of God's faithfulness to his people that he will not forsake them. They would be comforted. They would hear the needed message of condemnation, but they would also hear its counterpoint of salvation. And perhaps those people living in the day that received Samuel were questioning whether or not God had forsaken them. And through their own history as a people, to see God's faithfulness would be a sure comfort. Likewise, as they read God's word and heard his voice whisper in their hearts, they would hear him say, Oh, child of mine, if you would confess your sins, I will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you will abandon your sin and cling to the Lord your God, I will save you. And this is why I can stand before you this morning and confidently proclaim that God keeps his promises. He saves sinners. And you can trust God when he says that he can wash you and make you clean That through Jesus alone is the way to the Father. And that he has a plan to bring salvation to people from every tribe, from every tongue, and every nation. All who come to the Father through the Son will be accepted. No matter what sin you've committed, no matter how many times you've relapsed, no matter how many times you've failed to keep your promises, God is faithful. You can trust him. 
we see his faithfulness to Israel. And he has shown us as well his trustworthiness to every member of South Canyon. He will do it for you as well, friend. Trust and obey King Jesus. Follow him with all your heart. Lord, we thank you that your word is true. In both what it says about you and your righteousness and your holiness, and what it says about ourselves as a fallen and sinful people. We are prone to wander, and yet, Lord, you prove your faithfulness to every generation. You don't just wipe sin away and brush it under a rug. It has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with. And we thank you that Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree. That even as we are reminded of that today in communion, that Christ died to save sinners. That his blood atoned for us. He was a sacrifice. That because of his righteousness, his perfection, his death was efficacious for us. It satisfied the royal and holy demands of the law. And he is redeeming for himself a people who will cling to him. And so, Lord, we pray that we would hold fast to you, knowing that you hold fast to us. That we would cry out to you for mercy and hear your comforting words of assurance and pardon. That we are indeed forgiven. And that God indeed will not forsake us. So, Lord, we pray simply that you would bring faith to those who believe they are beyond your pardoning grace and that you would restore strength and joy to those who are tired and weary of fighting against sin, who question whether or not God's love can indeed tolerate another episode of a step back. May we all find you to be a trustworthy God And may we follow you with all our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.